Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Just Like Heaven, the 2005 Mark Waters romantic comedy starring Reese Witherspoon and Mark Ruffalo. I Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 55%, and the critics' consensus reads, delightfully sweet like a lollipop, Just Like Heaven is a dreamy romantic comedy that may give you a toothache when it attempts to broach difficult end-of-life issues by throwing a cherry on top. Well, that's not exactly a ringing endorsement for the film, but here at Below the Line, we're not concerned about what the critics think. I worked on this film as the second second assistant director, and my guests today are two other members of our AD team. First, Eric Pott. You were the key second AD on Just Like Heaven. You're currently a first AD and episodic director on NCIS Los Angeles, and you've been doing that show for so long that I'm just going to say it's been forever. And thanks for having me. And when you say forever, it is 4,551 days, not that I'm counting. <laughs> Thank you for giving me a small reprieve and let me think about something else besides the uh, number 16 show, uh, cop show on television. <laughs> well, you know, Eric, you come on this show, I think we're pretty much just a repository for the early episodic stuff of your career. It's sort of a, I don't know whether that's a good memories or a fever dream for you, but uh, always glad to have you back on. Thanks for having me. Also returning to the show today is Taylor Phillips. Taylor, you are a production assistant on Just Like Heaven, and if my memory serves, you left us about halfway through the show to go take an AD gig. We'll talk more about that later, whether you want to or not, but it's not a spoiler to say that you've been working full-time as a television first AD since at least 2014. Nice to see you again. Great to be back, and you're welcome for leaving. <laughs> yes, we're going to revisit that incident, but first, listeners, this is your spoiler warning for Just Like Heaven. Let's start by talking about the early stages of this film coming together. Eric, you had a history working with our first uh, Benjamin Rosenberg before this movie. Talk a little bit about where you guys were when Mark Waters came to you guys. What's sort of the history about how this thing got started? No, that, that's exactly right. Benji, Benjamin Rosenberg and I had like, it, it was a career at that point. I think I'd done five shows in a row with Benji and he had actually... It's kind of the reason I'm in Los Angeles. It's kind of the reason I'm doing any of this right now is that Benji had called me out to do a show, which was a Mark Waters show. It's Freaky Friday. So I moved to Los Angeles with that show in hand, did that show with Mark, you know, did another two shows with Benji. And then Mark came around getting uh, this show together. And Mark Waters at this point, you know, he was having a great run of it because he had done Freaky Friday, which did really well for Disney, went up, did Mean Girls like immediately thereafter, which they did in Canada. So I couldn't do that one. And then we had this one. So this was kind of my Benjamin Mark Waters period. Originally, it was called If Only It Were True, based on the name of the book that the movie is taken from. Am I, is that also how it was developed in the beginning or did they already know it was going towards just like- No, a hundred percent. So I'm going to pretend like I remembered all this off the cuff and didn't like <laughs> look into it and look at my notes and emails. You but... better have done your review <laughs> stuff. I did all my damn homework. But uh, Walter Parks and Lori McDonald, who were the DreamWorks uber bosses at that point, had bought this book, which was just being published, a French book called If Only It was true as a property and been developing it. And then they came aboard because they'd like Mark Waters stuff and hired him. So it was always, if only it was true. But the funny thing was, and please remember this guys, because this is a real memory I have from the show is that we all knew it wasn't going to be called if only it was true. And Mark started a contest 
where we were going to name the movie. And if you put out a flyer, <laughs> remember through the fall, it was posted everywhere. It's like, come up with a name for the movie. And it was like a case of beer or something was the prize or a Starbucks gift card or something. <laughs> and so all through the fall. And then when we came back in January after Christmas, I think somewhere around the first week, you'll see all the paperwork, everything changes over and it's just like heaven. And then in a minute, you're going to ask me who won the contest. <laughs> but before we answer that, do you guys remember this? Just lie if you don't. I absolutely do. Did you submit something? Because I remember over Christmas talking to my family, you know, when we were off in like Michigan, Chicago, and I'm like, hey, we can name this movie. And we had lots of ideas and we turned them all in. Anybody do that? We, I'm still not saying who won the contest. You know, I uh, I do not remember that. And uh, so Taylor, one of us will always lie and one of us will always tell the truth. And then the <laughs> audience can figure out which is which. I don't remember that specifically about the contest, but I don't know, maybe I was just busier than you, Eric, as far as... Uh, actually doing the movie at that time. Taylor, what you turned in a couple hundred names, right? What'd you, what'd you turn in? <laughs> I'm sure whatever I turned in was not serious in any way, shape or form. That's not why you left the show, right? You weren't just <laughs> so frustrated over that? <laughs> that I lost. Yeah. <laughs> totally the reason. Uh, February 2nd, a day that'll live in infamy, the day you left the show. Not that I'm, not that I'm counting. Wow, how do you remember that? That's amazing. <laughs> it's not like I have 61 call sheets lying in front of me. And I pulled up February 2nd, it says TBD, where your name used to be. And I'm like, why is that? I didn't even remember you left the show. So clearly I wasn't holding against you. And clearly- oh. I remember that half a dozen <laughs> shows after that. I didn't remember that I left the show either. All right. Well, then wow. that's going to be my, that's going to be my story to tell. But before we move on to more, when we join the show, Eric, you want to go ahead and spoil who, who named you? We'll save that for later as well. Here we go. The grand prize winner of naming just like heaven was Mark Waters won his own <laughs> contest, came back, announced it. I won, gave himself the prize. And it was called Just Like Heaven. Well, I knew that it had got changed over sometime in the course of streaming because our gifts at the end of the show say Just Like Heaven on it. So they were already well on the way to how they were going to market it before we got there. Back in the beginning. So you've got this history with, with Benji. You guys are doing another show. And then I come on board as your second second. And we had done some work together before, but this is the first time I'd been a part of your AD team full time. And it was amazing. No, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's why. I, welcome back, Eric. Always welcome yeah. on the show. Let, let me just, can, you want to set that up again or no? That's great. <laughs> no, I specifically remember, and I know I've told you this story before. The first time physically I remember you on set was uh, that day we had you out by the pier. Right? On cellular. When we were yeah. working on cellular, I came out and to I help specifically with remember we had this amazing AD named Squirrel. And so somewhere down the line, I was asking Paula, who is that? You know, at the end of the day, <laughs> who is Squirrel? And she's like, it's not Squirrel, it's Skid. <laughs> I'm like, that's it, Skid. <laughs> so somewhere between that moment and here, you know, it would, we uh, certainly realized that this was a relationship that would work for many decades. But this was the first time we'd worked with Taylor, I think, unless you, Taylor, you hadn't worked with either of us before this show, had you? I had not met either one of you. I remember going in for an interview and you guys were starting shooting like the next day and you had lost uh, your previous person, had been uninvited to the show and, uh, and I happily hopped on board. Yes. So my one story tattletale memory of this show actually is right around that, which we won't go into terrible details, but it is definitely a case where we had a PA on the show. We started and the very first day, which was the uh, screen test and the makeup test, 
through various reasons, we had to make a change immediately. <laughs> and so I would imagine your phone randomly rang, but I do not know how or where that number came up. Yeah, I don't I remember who gave us could... the reference. I, yeah, I don't remember who gave us the reference for, for Tara coming on board, but it was a big job because the spot we were trying to fill was the production assistant who was going to work with our first team, was work directly with our actors, keep track of their times and knock on doors and get their breakfast and such. And it was a pretty key role for us to entrust to some guy who, Little did we know was going to quit early at that time. <laughs> wow. Holy did, cow. Did I quit maybe like three days early or was it? it yeah. February 2nd literally is like a week before the end of the show. But here we are 15 years later, Skid, and you're like, yeah. oh, Taylor. <laughs> Those stories are I'm going to save you later. But so we, we came together in L.A., Beyond the testing, I don't think we did much shooting in LA before we went to San Francisco. Like I feel like no. we kicked things up off north. Or refresh my memory since you've got the all the call sheets in front of you. <laughs> You're a hundred percent right. We started the show with two weeks of production up in San Francisco. We had flown up there, we'd tech scouted up there, and that was the first two weeks. It was ten days we were shooting up there. Then we moved back to Los Angeles for the rest of the fifty-five day shoot. So there was a screen test day, which was the day it became clear that uh, we would need to find a replacement for Taylor. And then uh, there was uh, like a visual effects test. There's the screen test day where we figured we needed a replacement and Taylor was that replacement. We didn't know by then we needed a replacement. Oh no, that's Taylor. the thing. Secretly, I still carry this bitterness over his, <laughs> you know, the great abandonment of uh, 2005. <laughs> All right, well, jumping in. So we're shooting in San Francisco. The entire movie is set there. We got a lot of local color. We also shot some of the scenes up there. Remind me, I think... The the interior, that little montage of the three apartments, that was all down here. The exteriors, okay. obviously, we did up there. But interior-wise, sure, we shot some interiors, which was... Uh, and I don't... Actually, I do know why, come to think of it. The interior of Dina's house, the sister, what what's her name? Dina Waters, who played her sister, Abby. Right. We shot those interiors up there. And I was about to say I have no idea why, but it was actually our cover set if you recall, San Francisco oh. in November, our cover set and we had it set up every day. We could run to this silly little house up way up on this hill, pain in the butt to get to and uh, shoot the interiors. I had As forgotten a side that. note, I shot in that silly little house uh, 15 years later as a pr uh, production manager on uh, looking an HBO show. So I remember standing in here going, I've been here before. <laughs> well, that is utterly and completely random. <laughs> In all of San Francisco, one silly that, that little one house. San Francisco is an area where I'm willing to go out on a limb and say there are certain apartments and areas that do a lot of film traffic. I don't think anybody shoots full movies in San Francisco, right? Like it, maybe occasionally, but generally people go up there to get San Francisco and then go back to wherever they're doing their principal production. And so I bet it is a small list of folks that are the ones people look at for cover sets or interiors or things like that. So it isn't a complete surprise that being back up there, you might shoot some of the same stuff. Well, thanks to you guys. I have been working up here on and off since then. And I actually met my now wife on that trip to San Francisco. So thanks to you guys. Are you seeing the kismet of the arc of your life, Taylor? <laughs> that goes from, you know, our KPA being fired at a makeup test to you, you know, being the mayor of San Francisco with your wife right now. <laughs> you know, that all ties together strangely. And I'm trying to remember how much local crew we did hire, Eric, or did we bring a large amount of the crew up? I know we had additional ADs. We had production assistants. 
Uh, some of them got to know our team very closely, obviously. But what about the other departments and such? Were we local or did we travel up the, yeah, we, the, the entire crew? We, we traveled a lot. We had our local additional second or second second up there, whose name is escaping me. I'm sorry. Hired Zach, two, Hakeem, right? PAs. Yeah, Wasn't that- Hakeem. Exactly. Excellent memory. Excellent. Although I'm sure you looked it up, but excellent. <laughs> I, and, uh, I don't even have a call sheet in front of me. I just came back. And obviously extras casting, you know, hired a crazy amount of extras up there. You know, I was flipping back through paperwork and I'm like, either I'm so television minded right now, or we just overindulged. But, you know, I'm looking at the scene in front of the apartment, Mark's apartment, where the piece of paper flies around. And we had 80, 89 people there that day for <laughs> pedestrians walking up and down that street. And I'm like, what? You know, in my TV mind, I'm like, should it be five or 10? And to see 89 there, I'm like, you've got to be kidding. But then you go back and look at it. It's like the, you know, the, the train that comes up and goes by. There's like 40 people hanging on that train. I'm like, all right, if that sells the scene, so be it. That's a funny sequence too. If you remember, if you've watched the behind the scenes where they're talking about that, the, the train that broke down where we had the, the driving car, the wheel one, and it broke. Anybody remember that day? We had one that we were going to be able to fully control and it wasn't working for us. And so we had to time it off of actual cars coming up. Yeah, but I I remember that story. But then when I watched the movie last week, you'll notice in the opening montage, it's it's the fake one that goes by. And you can actually see its tires at the bottom of the screen as it goes by. (laughs) And then in the one where Mark runs across the street, you can see it's the real trolley train car coming up over, over the top probably with real people in it since we were just timing it. So I'm sure they're staring at the camera saying that's Mark Ruffalo. (laughs) Which proves like in production, you can plan (laughs) the cows come home, you know, but you still end up having to get lucky for things to be magical. What other notable scenes or experiences do you guys take away from our San Francisco time? Taylor, besides your wife, go. (laughs) It's hard to get past that moment because it was... (laughs) A little scandalous, and I'm actually in the house right now that I first went to after hooking up with my wife. So, uh, you know, I can't not think about that. I don't have the same experience up there, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad that you do. Yeah, actually, it, of that sequence, you know, there's a couple things, you know. Uh, certainly, I'm, I remember the very first scene we shot up there, which is above that park over on the hill, which is on the iconic strip with the, with the San Francisco row houses right there. Starting day one, you know, we had a 4.30 call that day, something ridiculous, and standing up there with the fog coming over the tower. And I'm like, oh, this is like filmmaking. This is great, <laughs> you know? And of course, we had 90 freaking background in that little park, which yeah. means I'm sure between the three of us, we were setting background a mile and a half away from camera because somebody asked for it. Also, uh, somewhere in that sequence, you know, there's a Mark Waters cameo with him holding baby Zoe, who just graduated from high school like two years ago, walks her through the uh, shot. You know, we, if you guys remember, we were shooting these weird weeks up there, right? I think we were shooting like th- Friday through Wednesday or something because we wanted to shoot over the weekend. So our nights were Tuesday, you know, and we were shooting till 3, 4 a.m. for those night sequences out there. But one of my whatever three stories that I remember from the show was we were shooting outside that bar. Remember the one where she possesses him? They go inside, but there's that exterior. And there was an alley scene right before that where Mark came down an alley and got surprised by a homeless person. And I don't think it's in the script, but we're shooting that and we've got it locked up. And I see this like guy in a trench coat just 
strolling down the center of our well-lit alley and he's got like this woman in heels next to him clip clop and they come marching up onto the set <laughs> and for some reason somehow they'd been let in i'm like who the frack is this and everybody gather around and they're talking to him and i get over there i'm like excuse me and it, it turns out it was gavin newsom right <laughs> anybody remember this <laughs> who had just been elected mayor and you know if you think about gavin and just his life and his trajectory is like i'm just gonna go where ever I can get the like most bang for the buck. And somehow he decided as mayor of San Francisco, I'm going to go down and hang out and meet these celebs and I'm going to bring my wife and we're going to, you know, and you know, he's so slicked back and in the full trench coat all, what is he? 31 when he got elected the mayor of San Francisco, he had just been, that was 2004. Right. So like that fall. So he was brand new mayor of San Francisco marching on our set. And this is a two-part story. First of all, does anybody remember him showing up on set? I do not remember him showing up on set. <laughs> Thank God. That's just mine, man. I own that story. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk. And I had to go back and look who was that woman. I'm like, what happened to his wife? His wife was Kimberly Gilfoyle. Gilfoyle. At that, yeah. <laughs> and you start seeing what happened to her. You know, she's Trump <laughs> Jr.'s girlfriend years later and hanging out with at the White House. And I'm like, I know that woman, too. <laughs> so, Boy, yeah. that's my brush with fame. I think my, you know, you sit there and say, oh, I've met Tommy Lee Jones or, you know, Julia Roberts. But now it's like Gavin Newsom and his soon to be ex-wife, Kimberly. Let me just say. The only other thing I remember is uh, is not ever breaking for lunch in San Francisco. <laughs> we went two weeks that, because the sun was going down at, you know, 430 that we just never broke for lunch. It was wild. To your point, Taylor, we were light dependent with these uh, iconic San Francisco exteriors the entire time until, of course, that cover set, which, Eric, I think we didn't shoot till the very end. I think we didn't ever actually go to cover over the course of shooting. We, we, actually, not... we carried it through the first week. So it was our, our last two days on the first week, because in the second week we had gone into nights. Mm. And if you look at those sequence, they're wet down and they're raining anyway. So we weren't scared of a little bit of moisture in uh, those sequences. So thinking back to the rooftop, I remember that we were going to film at a garage, but that the parking garage location wanted final cut of the film. <laughs> and that's why we ended up building that location on stage because we couldn't find a location that would work. So we ended up making that uh, giant green screen uh, on the LA Center Studios. That was not a last minute decision to do a big onstage green screen. To be a little bit fair, we actually, we had a location up in San Francisco. I have the, uh, the scout photos and it is precisely what's in the movie. And so we did end up going up, sending San Francisco, shooting a background plate to put onto our parking garage of whatever the Bay Bridge or whichever bridge is in the background. It's also a CG helicopter there as well in the background of that. So yeah, we were going to shoot that in San Francisco and we did not. That's maybe a good transition because that's one of our biggest sets back in LA. And so we come back down. So we built that rooftop set and had screens all the way around. And if you do watch the making of, it's obvious people can see what we've done, but I don't think it's that obvious in the movie that, that we're doing that. No, I mean, I'm certainly watching for it. So, you know, 2004 visual effects are not quite up to slough here. So I mean, it, it, to my eye, it certainly looks like a, a blue screen, but just the scope of that set, you know, is still really impressive for a silly little, you know, romantic comedy. Both of those, the apartment set was huge as well, but that rooftop set was all of stage two, which is not a small stage. That's LA Center Studios. And, you know, walking in and seeing a 360 degree blue psych all the way around that rooftop, 
And, you know, in the movie, when they're doing those sweeping shots around and you get, you know, the entire scope of San Francisco down there, it's pretty impressive. As you also mentioned, Eric, our other major set was the interior apartment itself, which was built to scale, right? Like we had the all of those rooms that were all connected and from the kitchen to the dining area to the living room to that little um, alcove, had the windows, a couple of scenes take place there. That was a huge set where we did most of our work, if I remember correctly. You are 100% right as owner of the podcast. 100% right. <laughs> you got that. And, you know, th there was no cheat there. As you said, it was a legit straight line. All Everything you see in the movie is exactly where everything was. Minus, you know, there's a stairwell up to a bright light to indicate there's a rooftop, but everything else. And to make it just slightly harder, it's elevated. It was, you know, eight, eight feet off the ground, the in entire set for two good reasons. One, she falls out the window, but the second is because the trans light, that is not visual effects. Here's a little secret behind. That was an actual picture of huge trans light. And according to the guys, and this is on the DVD, it's the largest San Francisco trans light ever made. I won't vouch for that or not, but because you'll have to look down a little bit, you know, when you go up with the camera, you end up looking down through the window. This whole set has to be elevated so that there's trans light below the windows. So. It's more impressive than you think, home audience. <laughs> but yeah, it was beautiful. It really was. You know, it would fool you. If you guys remember those night scenes in there and we get a little smoke in there and lighting and you'd stand inside that front and those bay windows wrapping all the way around looking out over all of San Francisco below you. You're like, I buy it. It's pretty good. Yeah, no, it was really amazing how that all came together. Great production design that created the space where, and again, since we're spending so much time there, you need to do the variety of where we're filming and being able to stage and just having that flexibility, I think, was, uh, was a huge asset for us. Literally, that, that was Carrie White, who is a very good production designer. And to that end, we were in that apartment for 14 days, which you're like, wow. <laughs> you know, again, I'm so TV minded. I'm like, how on earth could you shoot two-handers, basically two-person scenes or three-person scenes in the same set for 14 days? But it's a major part of the movie. <laughs> I feel like wow. we were in that apartment for, I can't. So the way we were structured is I was largely working on call sheets and contacting actors and coordinating the next day. And I remember going in and off that set, as you said, elevated as it was for you to look at something that feels like almost the entire movie to me, like more there than anywhere else. I think we've just let the audience into a little like behind the scenes of how much fun you might or might not have been having on the show. It <laughs> seemed interminable to you. All right, here's my little plug since we're right here in the middle of it for you, strangely enough, because I came across an email where I realized that this was actually the first time in my career where I had let somebody else do the call sheet. As the key second, I should be doing the call sheet. And I'm finding all these emails where I'm just giving you notes on the call sheet and then a little thank you later on. And it's interesting because as you said, we didn't have a huge amount of history at that point, but I think we came along so fast that I was that comfortable that quickly allowing as a second, you know, you, you want to own that call sheet. It's like your domain and that I was letting that go, not out of laziness, God willing, but, but out of- <laughs> That won't come till later when you're actually a first. At yeah, this point, you're still right. a second. But yeah, you were doing the call sheet. I'm not scared to admit it. Well, we'll balance that story by me telling the one that actually comes up the most when I'm thinking about just like heaven. And that's when I was also giving call times to the actors and John Heater, oh, God. you know, a major role. I, I think he'd done a couple of things since Napoleon Dynamite, but uh, they were trying to capture some of that energy, not quite as wacky. He was a great guy, but I called and gave him a call time and we're getting ready to shoot. And uh, 
and he's not here. And it's one of those early morning calls. We're sitting in the apartment and I call up John and I say, John, John, where are you? And he says, oh, you meant 6 a.m. I thought you meant 6 p.m. And I was like, oh, did I really, really mix that up? So at this point, we don't have anything else to film. Does anybody else remember me being in the trailer and binge coming out and clearing the trailer to talk to me one-on-one? At this point, is that, <laughs> or is that just I'm holding on to that one? I think that's your own, your own little cross to bear right there. I mean, I certainly remember the event and it's a story that I've told as a uh, precautionary tale to ADs <laughs> multiple times through the years that if it involves an actor, you know, hold their hands, look into their eyes and use very short words because it's, it's remarkable how the simplest things can get confused. It's clear that this had not happened on the first or second day of filming or when we were doing the test, because then otherwise uh, you would have been replacing me at the last minute as well. I think at this point, Binge trusted me and he said he knew I would take a bullet for him on the show. He knew it wasn't on purpose, but it could not happen again. That was our conversation. I don't know what you guys managed to film on set while we waited for John to come in from wherever he was, Malibu or something, for Christ's sake. I don't know how far it was, but it wasn't a short drive. And, you know, we moved on from there. But uh, yeah, that was a lesson I took to heart as well. You got to make sure it's clear that you got to have them repeat it back. Repeat it back to you. You got to mention whether it's going to be breakfast or dinner, you film them when they come in. Anything you can do to make sure they like it. It's so random. It's like an actor saying, oh, I thought you meant, you know, next March. And it's like, no, I'm sorry. It was tomorrow when I gave you the call. How on earth did this happen? I just remember thinking, thank God it wasn't me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God I didn't make that mistake. (laughs) And with whatever, 17 years of retrospect, now we can laugh about it. So the, the first 10 years were mighty painful. <laughs> well, it was a good lesson go. even then. It didn't happen to me on another show, I think. Of course, I've only got a couple more years before maybe I'm moving on. So. See, to be clear, it's never happened to any other AD in the history of cinema. <laughs> We're shooting on the stage. We wrap you at noon and you think you have a 6 p.m. call on the stage. I mean, what? I'm Possibly. There. I don't think he'd been in the day before. I don't think he went home with a call sheet. I think there was a phone conversation in his defense. It's it, probably in on, his defense. On he probably up. doesn't normally get up till 6 p.m. So that, that sure makes a, a big difference. You know, while we're still talking inside the apartment area and something you said earlier, Eric, I want to go back to the visual effects in 2004. Obviously, they're not what we see today, but there's quite a few of them in the apartment. There's where she's trying to grab the phone. She stands in the table. She punches Mark in the face and it goes through. She's inside the fridge for a while. Talk to me about what it was like capturing those visual effects in 2004. You know, what's interesting is those are such like low-key old special effects. You know, they're like lock-offs, you shoot a plate of a refrigerator and then you put her in there and you shoot her and we just comp it together. You know, it's crazy how effects have moved in 20 years, which are now the effects guys are just off in the corner. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just shoot it. I'll fix it. You know, because <laughs> just tracking marks. You want this motion. They don't care anymore. They'll, they'll just like do it because every 15 year old with a laptop, you know, and after effects can crank this stuff out. But back then, the effects you're talking about, like the phone, it's so simple, obviously. I mean, it's Star Trek effects, which is you lock <laughs> off the camera, you shoot the plates and sure her hand goes through nothing and there's the phone there. The two hard ones 
for 2004 were the ones we did on MoCo, which is motion capture camera rig, which people don't even use anymore. And it's probably the only time we ended up using it. I don't actually remember shooting MoCo too much, which is a computer controlled camera. It's the one where she like dissolves, you know, as he's walking down the hallway. Anytime the camera's moving back then and there was a, a visual effect, you'd have to match it perfectly on a, a motion controlled camera. So there's two of those in the show. And if you flip through our call sheet somewhere, it's like a big chunk of the day. It'll be like the whole morning. It says the MoCo shots. And so we did those. That was the one where she's walking down the hall and he's falling her and she disappears. I do remember that. What's the other one that, that involved uh, the camera? I, it's actually a Ruffalo at the end where he disappears and we're, we're pulling out on the camera away from him uh. because it's a, it's a camera move and not a digital zoom. But there's, there's like low-tech ones in there all, all the time, you know. I was watching it. There's twice where he does like a lighting change. Have you noticed those? Like where the sun will go from day to night. And that was actually all practical with big lighting changes. He'd walk up a stairwell and it would change from night to day. We had that all rigged in old school. And then if you guys don't have anything else, do you re actually remember the big problem on the show from a non-visual effects standpoint was we're like, adamant that she could interact with the environment, which was when we got into it, started being a pain in the ass, which is sitting on the couch, lying in the bed, getting in and out of a car, you know, was the same problem. Do you remember that scene where she got out of the truck outside the apartment where they walk up to that guy's house, right? We ended up having to, obviously you take the door off so she could flip through the door, but then she's getting out and the car's bouncing up and down as she got out. So we had to get transfer up there to take the car, put it up on jacks, and even that wasn't enough. And then the grips were under there trying to stabilize it because all, you know, 94 pounds of Reese Witherspoon somehow <laughs> was bouncing this big truck. And then the same thing in the bed, you know, when she's lying with Ruffalo, it's like er, her head is denting the pillow. So we spent time and energy thinking, okay, we need a wooden pillow and we need, you know, plywood under the bed on her side so she doesn't dent into the bed. That's low tech effects. <laughs> I don't remember all those details, maybe because I was working on call sheets. But uh, and Taylor, you were just getting actors ready. You were you that much on set as far as dealing with these actors? You know, I was not on set all that much, but I, I do remember a story from the hospital set where I was in base camp and I heard Eric get on the walkie-talkie and say, uh, "Let's have everybody step off the set. The set is on fire." <laughs> and sure enough, there was a big fire on the stage, and Eric was so calm. Did I just hear that right? The set was on fire. You know, li literally the set was on fire. And, uh, you know, this is obviously a memory that stands out clearly in my head. It it's one of those moments when you look up and you're like, what is that? And it's fire. And then like it runs through your head. Oh my God, I got everybody out. And then I'm like, I can't yell fire. You know, the cliche is you can't yell fire in a crowded movie house. So I should not <laughs> yell it on the stage. So, you know, I'm like, I'm going to be so calm right now. <laughs> I'm like, all right, let's remove the background over here. All right. And you know, whoever, who was on set with me at that point, I'm like, you guys grab Reese and let's get her off the stage. But here's the little backstory. At that point, we were shooting the sequence where we're rolling her around of the hospital and she's literally strapped in that gurney. And it took several minutes because of the IVs and the thing in her mouth and all that stuff. And I'm like, we don't have time for that. So we literally grabbed Reese on the gurney <laughs> she stepped, and we're pushing her through the set under the burning flaming, you know, it was a, it's a light that had caught a bunch of stuff in the beams on, on fire and it was growing pretty fast. <laughs> we rolled her out completely strapped on the gurney outside and we're outside counting crew, making sure everybody's there and Reese lying strapped to a gurney thing, you know, could you maybe please let me off now, guys? 
did we build that from scratch? That I don't recall exactly. You tell oh, me. We, we we built it much we much did. like the much like the apartment. It was the same thing. It was a really large set, and that was all practical. It had that whole square and operating rooms and bathrooms and everything built off it. Because remember, they had to do that gurney chase around, being you know basically an old West Wing kind of gag. So they right. have a lot of walk and talks. That whole opening montage with her walking and talking to patients and stuff. So it, it had a lot of geography to it. And, you know, we were, we were 10 full days in there. So 14 in the apartment and 10 at the hospital. My other note, and it ties together both our practical visual effects and the hospital, is that sometimes we had Reese in the bed for the coma, but when she's doing the ghost, we had a photo double that looked enough like Reese that when we put the mask on, it was like she was in two places, but we didn't do that visually. That was practical. We had somebody else to be her in the bed. Let me put a caveat on that, which is that is, that is right. We had this girl from Utah, Mara Lee. Remember this? I, th <laughs> I think she talks about it on the DVD, so I won't endlessly belabor it, but Reese knew of this person that looked just like her and hook and crook. We got her on the phone and flew her whole family. And as I recall, her five kids and her husband, <laughs> the whole Mormon family out to Los Angeles and kept them for weeks while we, you know, did this. And she was the one in the bed throughout. But back me up on this. And I can't find anything to this. I don't think we had the, the ventilator on her. I think that that is a visual effect. And I'm going back and freeze framing through it. I remember that we were so enamored with it and we're like, we're getting away with this. And somewhere in post-production, it was decided that it wasn't working well enough. And so if you go back and look at the wide shots, she's wearing that ventilator. I think it's CG. Figure out if anybody remembers better than I do. We'll throw that out there and we'll see if the visual effects people from the show, who I don't remember who they were, come back and say, no, we did or didn't put that in. But I think you might be right. I think that we were very enamored of how well it was working on set. But yeah. then in the movie, it is. You're right. It's governor face. I seem to recall us at some point saying, you know, oh, it's Reese. We want to see her. You know, it's vulnerable. And this enormous like alien mask covering her face was taking away some of the pathos of the scene. So we started shooting without it. But at some point that the, the gag didn't work. But let's be clear. Mary Lee was bizarrely <laughs> just doppelganger for except she had. Didn't she have like this nutty Southern accent? <laughs> being from Utah, but I, in my head, she had like <laughs> yeah. a really strong twangy accent. And you're like, this is Reese, but she has this accent. Or maybe <laughs> I'm confluting like Sweet Home Alabama in my head. I don't know anymore. Now, when did we do those scenes? Taylor, are you still with us or have you already quit by the time we're doing the hospital stuff? Oh no, you're still there because you know the hospital catches fire. So February you're, you're... 2nd, baby, <laughs> look it up. My wife was actually in the hospital as working as an extra. February 10th was the last day shooting. So as bitter as you are, Skid. <laughs> really? It's only like a week to go. Or something. Oh, yeah, wow. That, exactly. In that context, David, do you remember working with Mary Lee and, uh, you know, as the photo double, getting her ready or her family being around? I don't think I had any interaction with them at all. Do you recall any of that? I remember that, you know, she'd never been on a film set before. And I think somebody had found her or seen her in an airport somewhere. Is that? It, it was Reese. remember that? Reese had found her in an airport. Reese was the one that gave her, uh, her gave us her name, saying, "Call this woman." Yeah, uh, it was pretty amazing. And, she, and you know, she, we we're going to have her work as a stand-in, but she was uh, didn't quite understand that process either. <laughs> so I think we ended up bringing it a separate stand-in to, to work. Absolutely. So she just, and and I think we only ended up using her, you know, a couple of times. I we remember did. we would bring her in and get her ready, and then uh, and then she would sit around. She was there when we needed her, and that's <laughs> you know. 
such is the life of a double, you know, ask any stunt double in the industry. It's like, or anybody for that matter, it's like you're paid to wait. It's, it's crazy. You know, anybody would be in a movie for free, but nobody waits around doing nothing for free. So you're, you're paid for the waiting. Yeah. Now, the most exciting part of my day was usually when, uh, when Ruffalo would show up with his driver, uh, Lenny. Do you guys remember Lenny? Uh, yeah. God, uh, Lenny no. was may- maybe in his uh, early 80s. He had, you know, these bushy eyebrows. And, uh, you know, even though he was supposed to be driving Mark, you know, nine times out of 10, Mark would be driving him. <laughs> I studied a work program there for Lenny. And he would show up and smoke cigarettes and drink coffee all day and tell stories. And, uh, you know, oftentimes he would be in the craft service line and, you know, he had this joke where he would drop his pants <laughs> And as he was at the craft service table and, you know, you couldn't get away with that today, but back then it, everybody thought it was hilarious. <laughs> it, it's so funny that we're saying that's a joke, but it's a felony. So it's, it's, it's a fine yeah. line. <laughs> I like today. Oh, today we're talking. Yeah. That was, you know, 2004, 2005, kind of crazy. Not exactly the dark ages, but far enough that I have almost no memories of the show. You know, I don't remember the specifics on that, but they had some kind of history. He had worked on something or Mark had a friendship with Lenny and that Lenny was his body man for better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and Lenny had a, you know, very interesting past. I think he had, you know, written songs with Nina Simone and, you know, anytime you sat down with him, he he gave you Hollywood stories that, you know, went back 50, 60 years. It's so sad that ultimately, you know, that's going to be us. So <laughs> us sitting around telling the, you remember that time, Mark Heater, you guys aren't going to believe this. <laughs> At well, craft that- services. Oh, where's, where's my pants? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah, they might let you know, Eric. Well, talk to me more about working with the cast on this. Taylor, you were getting them ready every day, except for apparently the last week. Like I said, still not willing to let that go. But uh, what was it like working with Reese, working with Mark Ruffalo, some of the other notables in this group? You know, they were they were great. You know, they they came in on time and, and did their thing. I mean, I, I don't know that there's anybody else that's nicer than, than Mark Ruffalo. He was a class act. Uh, and, you know, Reese was great. Gave us all great rap gifts at the end of it. And, uh, I think she was going through a divorce at the time, but she still managed to be just a total delight. You know, I was, I came in being a little concerned because, you know, my predecessor had been uninvited partially due to, you know, four, four <laughs> hours a day. Let's be totally yeah. clear. Survived. It's like the trailer's a wrecking machine. Not everybody gets along with everybody on every set. Yeah. And there are certain it's people just... that you cannot fire. And there are certain people that can find other work so <laughs> so you were stepping into a situation where there's some challenges for sure yeah i think it was only the first or second time i'd run base camp you know it was a, it was a good team i mean i think our, sometimes you get divas and there really wasn't uh it all seemed to go quite smooth until apparently i left you guys high and dry <laughs> we, we did shut down for what two weeks after that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. because we had to but, we but went seem- through a whole casting process for your replacement we're like are we gonna get so <laughs> I, I seem to remember that uh duty who was you know we refer to him as duty uh steve dudica came in and, and covered me at the end am i am i correct steve might have been there for the whole show actually wasn't he our other pa he was there yeah. for the whole show and um we had Ryan wow. and Duty through, and then we moved Duty over to do first team during that week. And I don't know who, if anyone, we brought in to replace him. That'd be a call sheet check, Eric, if you if you know who we're talking about. I don't know where the call sheets are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
again on my glass. So Ryan has been my key second on uh, multiple seasons of episodic television. And uh, Steve Dudek, I ran into the other day. He works on Brooklyn Nine Nine. Oh wow! It's all I'm moving up say in the this world. Was, this was a rock star team. You know, it's like when you go back and you know look at some weird little obscure jam session. Everybody on the show ended up uh, being an AD of note. Darn it! Nobody dropped off. Well, I mean, I did, yeah. but. Uh... No, that was once you reached the pinnacle and you yeah, said, I have nothing more to offer Hollywood. <laughs> that's what I got out. I thought Ryan had dropped out as well, Taylor. Is that, uh, didn't he quit for a while? Didn't he move to New York or, or was he doing AD work there as well and just come back? Uh, you know, he just got hired on to the uh, dueling cop show, uh, The Rookie, as a first AD. So he's, he's around. I, you know, he, I think he moved to New York to, uh, to be with, uh, to marry his wife. Oh, okay. He's, well, he's back and forth. All right. Well, you give him my best and I will, we'll have to get him on the show. So speaking of that last week, which we've alluded to the whole time, the story that I remember, and Taylor, you might have even blocked this out, is you were worried about leaving the show and what it was going to mean for your relationship with us, because we all had gotten along really well. Spoiler, we brought you on to Bonneville when we were shooting in Utah and worked, looked for other opportunities. To wait, wait, because- wasn't that punishment to bring him to Utah? <laughs> Yeah, you didn't, you didn't have right, a choice about joining us on, on that one, but you were worried. <laughs> like, this is payback. You're coming to Utah. We're going to pay you $9 a day, and you're going to love it. My sage wisdom was it's perfectly reasonable for you to leave, particularly because you're a PA for us, and it was an AD gig. You were going to get a AD, and I don't remember specifically my, what. My very was. first. My very first uh, second AD job. And so that makes all the sense in the world to make that choice. The challenge is, is that how you're remembered is unfortunately going to be out of your control in the sense that if you leave and it goes well, then all the memories of you are going to be great. But if you leave, and even if it's not your fault, if duty fucks it up, you're the one who's going to be responsible for that. And that's a risk you got to take. I think it's a risk worth taking in your situation. I think I counseled you that at the time. I thought you're making the right choice. But boy, if this next week is awful for us or... You know, again, in my memory, it was the next six months of the show that you were abandoning. But, uh, you know, if, if that had gone bad, then, yeah, there might have been some unfortunate bitterness that can follow somebody when you leave a show early. So I left. Did duty mess it up? Is that what? <laughs> no, if, if duty had messed it up, we would probably not be talking to you today. <laughs> you wouldn't have your wife and you wouldn't be on this podcast. Yeah. This whole, whole alternative reality. A Disney Marvel uh, spinoff show. Yeah, you really owe duty for everything that uh, went well for you after that. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, thank you. So I left to do what was probably the worst job I've ever had. <laughs> it makes you guys feel any better. It really actually does. <laughs> yeah, it does. That's great. No, that's uh, that seems fitting. It was it was a no budget movie where you know I was running base camp also doing the call sheet, also doing the production report. You know, I got thrown into it. And uh, actors who were on cocaine, <laughs> not showing up to work. Your your story of telling John the, the wrong, uh, you know, him getting confused. I mean, I, would, I had an actor who just left in the middle of the day and didn't come back for five hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when he came back, he was high as a kite, basically blamed me and said that I had told him he could leave. <laughs> Did you tell him he so, could get high? That's a bad yeah. AD choice. They don't yeah, teach that uh, one in I, the program. I walked into his room and, you know, just to make sure he wasn't hiding in the bathroom. And there was, you know, mountains of cocaine that had been pushed into the corners of the table. 
and uh, and he is a working actor today. So I will. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. We say this: the unspoken rule of this podcast is no uh, season desist letters. So yeah, let's just uh, yeah, we'll keep it at that. <laughs> so yeah, so you know, it uh, it was a good education for me, but uh, I would have rather stuck it out with you guys for another week. Well, and going back to our cast, they took care of us. Reese's gift of the luggage that said "Just Like Heaven" on it. I still use. It's one of the best travel bags I've got. It's got a nice little handle on it. I still have it, 100%. You know, it's sitting right there with our duffels. I don't remember what- They were good folks. I mean, this is actually why approaching this podcast, I'm like, okay, here we go. And I'm like, I don't got a lot of stories. (laughs) And for better or for worse, it's actually kind of a show. When you think of a show like that, it just went really well, you know, top to bottom. You know, the script was in place. It was funny. Mark, Mark really knows his stuff. And going back- and looking at that, here, here's the thing. I went back and Mark, it turns out, I totally forgotten this, emailed me his shot list for days ahead. He'd have his shot list laid out. And it turns out it's the shot list I still use today. I totally stole his format and his format. And I'm like, what is this? This is my shot list. I'm like, no, it's actually Mark Waters shot list. So smart, good guy, went smooth, wrapped early, got our stuff, you know, no fuss, no drama. And let's let's push back. I know we say we say we don't talk about the show. I think fifty five. That's not fair. You know, I went back and watched this movie, and there's nothing really wrong with this movie. It is a perfectly sweet little film. My kids come in. You know, my twenty one year old daughter. She's like, oh, I love this movie. I've seen it like twenty times. And I'm like, did you know I worked on it? No, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but I've seen it twenty times. And she's like, everybody I know watches this movie. I'm like, really? Okay. <laughs> So, you know, I, I did Best Friend's Wedding and I did this. And in my mind, you know, even though Best Friend's Wedding seems to have endless legs and people talk about it till the end of time, I think this is a cuter film. So there it is. From my point of view, you know, it was a great movie. It went fantastic. But it just goes to show you that, you know, Reese and Mark on screen, I felt like they had zero chemistry. <laughs> you know, they're both amazing well, people. They weren't in the same uh, room. So that makes sense. <laughs> Everything went great. And, you know, there's just that thing that, uh, you know, a great story, but, uh, you know, sometimes it just doesn't click. And clearly that's what happened with the audience or they market it wrong or something. But let's let's give Mark individually his due, which is there's that scene up on the rooftop where he's talking about when his wife died. It's a, like a powerful little dramatic moment. I've seen Mark in a lot of shows and it might be as good a work as he ever did in this silly little, you know, fluffy little romance. It caught me a little. They did have different approaches. I think it's fair to say where this was Reese's movie. It was not a Reese Witherspoon, Mark Ruffalo joint production. This was Reese's movie. And Mark was glad to be there and, and, and wonderful to get along with. I think anecdotally, you can look at their gifts. We got those wrap gifts from Reese. I don't remember what she did at Christmas, but I think we also got Christmas gifts from Reese that were similarly thought through. I don't remember what it was. If I don't know if either of you recall what she did for the crew at Christmas. She got me a new car, didn't she? <laughs> she got, you, you guys didn't get that? <laughs> You're just talking about the residuals, although you didn't get those kind of residuals off of 55%. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, but I do remember what Mark did at Christmas where I think he was sort of last minute and he had Lenny walk around with a big box of alcohol and every department got a bottle. And it was just sort of like, hey, are you guys rum guys or vodka guys? And it was just sort of, it went all the way around. And it was like, I think you picked those up on the way into work today, didn't you? Like this was the, this was the approach. He was great to work with. Always a pleasure, as you, as you said, on set. But uh, 
their interactions with the entire movie, I think were coming from different places. And let's talk about, you know, how Mark was approaching it. Mark Waters, he saw it as like this, you know, throwback comedy, this 40s kind of, you know, His Girl Friday kind of thing, which had, it had a very light sensibility to it, which in retrospect, and it's not his fault, you all remember that the Terry Schiavo thing came down like right in the middle of this. And people started saying, oh, this movie is a, is a response to Terry Schiavo. I did not remember Kova. that. The, whole, the business, yeah. the coma in Florida, right. And so there was press around the movie is coming out saying, oh, this is a response to that. And it had nothing to do with it. So that, that's a little bit of a drag, because if you thought that, then this movie is propaganda for no end of life decision making. Well, it's important to note on Rotten Tomatoes as well, which I think most of our listeners are familiar. The 55% is percentage of reviewers that gave it a positive review. It doesn't really speak to the quality of the film and a film that comes out in those circumstances. As you point out, Eric, there's some controversy around you know, what the message is trying to be. That makes a lot of sense. But there's a lot of charm in this film, I think. I think people brought their all from a shooting perspective. It went well. And uh, yeah, it was a great experience for me, which is why I'm glad having you guys on today to kind of reminisce on it. Taylor, you, you are officially forgiven now for, for leaving a week early. Uh, oh, I've let that you. go. This is as much therapy for me as... Uh, entertainment for our audience. So thanks so much. Literally, that's why you do this podcast, right? <laughs> just, just, you know, to save money on therapy, work through all the pain and suffering that Hollywood brought you. Still working through my, uh, through my IMDb resume. So we're sadly, I think almost out of movies, you and I, but you know, if let's just make one up sometime. <laughs> Your mileage may vary, but I personally had a lot of fun catching up with those guys. Thanks for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so it's easy to cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us if you're so inclined. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at below the line, dot biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Take care. And join us again next week for a new episode of Below the Line. Taylor, any re- any reason to see your smiling face? Well, I'm, uh, I'm back on SEAL Team, so uh, I'm sure we'll be crossing paths uh, on, you know, at locations this there coming season. On the CBS dial. Yep. Strangely, we are doing three episodes for CBS, and then we are transferring to Paramount+. Plus. How's that for odd? Can you use more profanity once you're over on Paramount+, Plus, or is that basically just network, but more complicated to access? You know, we'll see. We'll see. I don't think anybody really knows yet. I, I think it'll give us a little bit more flexibility to, you know, drop some F-bombs or, you know, show some butt crack. But, uh, you know, <laughs> just f- what America's funny demanding. Enough, we, it's, it's the measure know, of adult television. <laughs> we had an episode where, we, you know, we shot 25 people, <laughs> you know, like in the head. But uh, we wanted to show a little a little butt crack, you know. <laughs> plumber's crack of one of our actors as he was drunk getting in bed and, and CBS said, Oh, that's too far. <laughs> <laughs>